I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to Remembering Zion, Setting Minds on Things Above. In this episode, I will be reading Chapter 3 of my book, Sound Worship, A Guide to Making Musical Choices in a Noisy World. The title of this chapter is, Why Do We Sing in Church?, and addresses the important question of the purpose of our worship music. Sound Worship is available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Along with the book, there is a teacher's edition that helps you teach through the material, either in a small group setting, a Sunday school setting, or other opportunities you might have to teach about worship and music. I hope this material is helpful to you. Chapter 3. Why do we sing in church? I once knew a man who attended a church where he loved the preaching but hated the music. He told me that each Sunday he actually planned to arrive 45 minutes late to the service because by then the music would be finished and he could enjoy the message. I know another man who refuses to sing during the services at his church because he doesn't like to sing. For him, singing hymns is just for those who enjoy it. He is willing to let other people do what they like to do, but he is just there for the preaching. I know of other people who demand that their churches cater to their musical preferences. If their church won't play music that they like, they'll just look for another church. Or, we all know of churches that have multiple services or even multiple campuses, each tailored to a particular style of music. Each of these scenarios shares something in common, and it has to do with what the people involved view as the primary purpose of music in church. These people view music as either completely irrelevant or just as something to enjoy doing as they gather for worship. If we were to ask these people what they think the purpose of music and worship is, they'd probably answer something like this. Sacred music is right truth packaged nicely. We take good doctrinal truth and we set it to something we enjoy so that it will be memorable and so that we can learn the truth. There is some validity to an answer like this. But I think such an answer is inadequate. The reason this kind of answer is inadequate is that it completely misses the primary reason that we have sacred music. The people who answer this way focus only on the words of sacred music and give no consideration to the actual music itself or even to the poetic form of the words. The danger with that kind of view is that it leads to the philosophy that as long as the words are biblically sound, we can use whatever musical forms we enjoy, or we can eliminate music in worship altogether. So, why do we sing in worship? In order to answer the question of why we use music in worship, we need to first answer the question, what is worship? What is worship? The primary text that explains to us the essence of worship is John 4, 21-24. In this passage, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. In order to change the subject off of her sin, the woman asks Jesus about the proper outward forms of worship. The Samaritans say we need to worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews believe we must worship on Mount Zion. So what is the proper way to worship? Jesus replies in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Both the Jews and the Samaritans were preoccupied with the outward forms of worship, and for good reason. God had established very specific forms for Jewish worship in the Old Testament. But Jesus replied that with his coming, the outward rituals were no longer necessary. Instead, he focused on what the essence of worship has always been, response of the Spirit to truth. Worship happens when believers understand truth about God and respond rightly with their spirits. In this way, worship really should encompass all of life for the Christian. Worship is not limited to corporate church gatherings on Sunday morning. In every moment of our lives, we should be responding rightly with our spirits to truth about God. However, for the sake of our discussion here, let's focus our attention specifically on congregational worship and the music we choose for these gatherings. Worship in Truth The first essential component of worship is truth. This assertion has two implications. First, we must worship according to God's instructions found in his word. We cannot worship however we please. We must worship how God pleases. Notice what Christ says in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews at that time were worshiping correctly because they were following the instructions about worship given to them in the word of God. The Samaritans had invented their own ways of worshiping God. So, what is this true way to worship that God has commanded in his word? First, we must worship only the one true and living God. This is expressed in the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 23. Second, we must worship through the person of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is what makes our worship possible, and it is only through his high priestly ministry that we may even approach the holy God in worship. Hebrews 9, 11-14 say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Third, God has given us clear prescriptions and examples of the elements we may include in our corporate New Testament worship. These God-approved elements are scripture reading, 1 Timothy 4.13, preaching, 2 Timothy 4.2, singing, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, prayer, 1 Timothy 2.1, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, Acts 2, 41-42, and giving, 2 Corinthians 16. If we are to worship in truth, we may not add any other elements based on our own ingenuity or creativity. 
So first, to worship in truth means that we worship according to how God has commanded in his word. Second, worship in truth means that the content of our worship must present truth from God. This means that preaching is certainly important as an element of corporate worship. This is why Paul commands Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13. And this is one of the reasons we sing in a church service. The texts of our hymns should contain rich truth about God. We cannot worship without understanding biblical truth. Worship in spirit. But worship does not end with simply understanding truth. As Christ says to the woman in John 4, God desires those who will worship him in spirit and truth. In the original text, there is only one preposition, in, that governs both nouns. In other words, it should read in spirit and truth, not in spirit and in truth, as some translations render the phrase. What this indicates is that these two qualities are not separate characteristics of true worship. They are essentially connected. Without one or the other, there is no true worship. Now, what did Jesus mean when he referred to spirit? Consider the context. The woman was asking about specific locations. Which mountain is correct, this one or that one? In his answer, Christ was de-emphasizing the physical locations and rituals of worship in favor of immaterial spiritual responses, that is, response of the heart, response of the affections. True worship involves responding to truth with our hearts. Christ himself said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with our whole being, Mark 12.30. Our affections are at the center of what it means to worship the Lord. Now, we need to stop for just a moment and consider this notion of the affections, because it is often misunderstood today. When I say affections, I am not referring to merely physical feelings, things like butterflies in the stomach, goosebumps, tears, or exhilaration. Affection may be accompanied by physical feelings, but the feelings themselves do not define the affection. There are three reasons we must separate the idea of spiritual affections from physical feelings in our understanding. First, individual personality plays a significant part in the kind of feelings or the intensity of the feelings you may experience along with an affection. Some people are naturally extroverts. We may say about a person like this, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. What we mean is that he is a naturally expressive person, and so the affections he has internally tend to reveal themselves quite readily in observable physical ways. But we cannot define the affection by the feeling because someone else may not experience that same kind of external feeling. Second, We may experience different kinds of feelings at different times, even though we have the same affections. Sometimes, when I have the affection of joy, I feel peaceful, warm, comfortable, and serene. Other times, when I have the affection we call joy, I feel boisterous, energetic, and lively. Same affection, but much different ways of physically feeling that affection 
depending on the circumstances. But the primary reason we cannot equate spiritual affections with physical feelings is that physical feelings can be stimulated without any thought or spiritual affection whatsoever. You may have a physical feeling that accompanies the affection of joy, but that same kind of feeling can be artificially stimulated by riding a roller coaster. The difference between feelings that are merely chemical responses to a stimulus and affections that result in feelings is like the difference between laughing because you've been tickled and laughing because you get a joke. When I tickle my son and he has certain feelings that result in laughing, nothing is going on in his mind intellectually. He is merely responding to a stimulus. However, if I were to tell you a joke, you would have the same physical response of laughing, but it would be because you have intellectually comprehended the punchline. Let me give you another example. One night when I was in college, a friend of mine snuck into my bunk bed while I was out of the room just before lights out in the residence hall. I came into the room, turned off the lights, and got into my bed without ever noticing that he was there. After a few moments of silence, my friend shouted, Boo! And I dove out of the bed. I certainly experienced a feeling of exhilaration. But that feeling had nothing to do with an internal spiritual response of my affections. It was merely a chemical response to an external stimulus. When Jesus says worship in spirit, he is referring to a response of our hearts after we have understood and affirmed truth, and it may or may not be accompanied by physical feelings. Facilitating Worship in Spirit and Truth So how can we worship in spirit and truth in a corporate gathering? It is fairly easy to list the kinds of things that we use in a church service for the purpose of teaching truth. Teaching, preaching, reading the scriptures, and the lyrics of our hymns all help to teach truth to our minds. But what about worshiping in spirit? How can we respond with our spirits after truth has been presented in corporate worship? We can, of course, simply tell the Lord that we love him or that we rejoice in him. But really, words are inadequate to express our hearts, aren't they? Those who are parents know what it is to have no words to express the joy at the birth of a child. Those who have lost loved ones know how limited mere words can be to express the accompanying grief. Words alone are inadequate to express our affections. Not only that, but words are also inadequate in teaching us what affections we should be expressing to God. I can tell you to rejoice in the Lord, but what do I mean by rejoice? Do I mean some kind of rousing enthusiasm that I might experience at a sporting event? Do I mean a restful, warm peace that I might have when watching my children play? I can tell you to love God, but what do I mean by love? Do I mean the kind of love I have for pizza? Do I mean the kind of love I have for my wife or children? Do I mean the kind of love a teenage girl might express toward a rock star? Each of these could be called love. You see, not all emotion is created equal, 
and mere words do not contain the nuances necessary to distinguish between kinds of joy or kinds of love. So, if I want to express joy to the Lord, but I'm not quite sure how to express the kind of reverent joy he deserves instead of a flippant kind of joy, I need something to help me distinguish between the two. If I want to express love to God, but I'm not certain how to express acceptable love to him instead of romantic love, I need something to help me distinguish between the two. You see, we need something besides mere words to help us both express our affections to God and teach us the qualities of right affections. The Language of Our Spirits God has gifted us with music to help us with the spirit side of worship. After we have understood truth about God, music is a tool that God has given us both as a language for the expression of our affections to God and to teach us the kinds of affections we should be expressing to him. Expressing Our Spirits We find this twofold benefit of music and worship expressed in what are perhaps the two best known passages in the New Testament that speak about music. The first is Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Notice the last phrase identifies the heart as the primary focus of music. Music provides a means to express our affections to the Lord. This can be done with or without words. Notice that the verse says singing, that's a word to designate vocal music most likely with words, and making melody, that's a word that literally refers to playing on a stringed instrument, music without words. So literally, sing and strum with your heart to the Lord. As we saw earlier, words are unable to adequately express what we feel. Sacred music, that is, poetry and music, provides us with the language we are lacking in the expression of our affections. So in a church service, as we contemplate truth and goodness, we use music to help us take the next step and respond with our affections. We believe in the holiness of God, But when we put that truth to a fitting tune, we can express how we feel about that truth. We believe that Jesus sacrificed for us on the cross, but when we put that truth to a fitting tune, we can better express how we feel about that truth when mere words wouldn't be sufficient. Now, emotion for its own sake is not what we're after. Many contemporary churches have it right when they insist that expression of emotion is a critical part of the church's work. However, they often have a misunderstanding of emotion and end up focusing on emotion for its own sake apart from the necessary connection to biblical truth. I'm afraid that many churches that have excellent doctrine but are using pop music with that doctrine are doing so because they confuse the physical feelings with true biblical responses of the spirit, true affections. They also fail to recognize that not all emotion is the same. Some kinds of emotional expressions are simply inappropriate for the worship of God. Teaching Our Spirits 
So music helps us express right affection for truth when we cannot adequately put it into words. And second, music actually teaches our emotions. No passage better illustrates this point of music as a teacher of the emotions than Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice that it says that we should teach and admonish each other with music. Now, I do not doubt that teaching here involves using the words to teach truth and goodness as well. But the primary part of man that is being taught by music is his emotions. This is evidenced by the phrase, with thankfulness in your hearts, emphasizing the internal aspect. We saw the same internal heart emphasis of music in Ephesians 5. Again, what these verses are talking about refers to more than just music with words, it refers to music without words as well. So music helps us actually teach believers emotions. We can see this kind of thing evidenced in scripture. When Saul was in a terrible emotional state, David used music to change and mature his emotions. 1 Samuel 16.23 When Paul and Silas were in prison, They used hymns to lift their spirit, Acts 16.25. Just like we need teaching to correct our wrong thinking and our wrong acting, so we need teaching to correct our wrong feeling. And music is just that teacher. Our society today is filled with such wrong feelings. Accidentally cut someone off on the road and the rage rises right to the surface. But Christians have the same kinds of wrong feelings. And when we fill our lives with music that expresses rage, we are doing nothing to help our problem. We are not helping to sanctify our emotions. I think one of the biggest problems in churches, and especially with young people, is an unbiblical, sentimental, sensual view of love. Again, this view of love is more about the feelings themselves than true biblical affection. One of the factors that has led to this, I believe, is filling our lives with music that may not seem overtly evil, but it expresses a sentimental, smarmy, light, and fluffy view of life and love. And then, even worse, we bring the same kind of music into the church, and our view of love for God is equally wrong. Instead, we must view all music, and sacred music in particular, as a tool to help us teach ourselves how we should be feeling, how we should be responding with our affections to truth. Conclusion So this is why we use music in church. First, we use music to help us express right affection to the Lord. When we understand truth, music helps us respond with our affections when we might not otherwise have the right words to say. Second, good music educates our emotions and tells us what we should be feeling. When we don't know what kind of affection we should have or when we actually have the wrong kinds of emotions, good music can teach us what kind of affection is right. We may draw several important practical applications from this understanding of the purpose of music and worship. First, 
setting the philosophy of music for a church falls under the responsibility of pastoral leadership, just as setting the philosophy of preaching falls under pastoral authority. Expressions of the Spirit and teaching the Spirit are just as important and just as potentially dangerous as expressions of truth or teaching truth. This means that not just anyone in the church can demand a certain song or musical style, no more than he can demand a certain doctrine. He can suggest or request, of course, but at the end of the day, the final decisions must be left to pastoral authority. Second, active participation in the singing of the church is not optional. Since singing is not just pretty packaging for truth presentation, but an essential God-ordained means for the expression and teaching of right affections in worship, every worshiper must participate. We do not have a choice whether or not we sing any more than we have a choice whether or not to listen to preaching, participate in scripture reading, live holy lives, or love God. Third, only music that expresses emotions that are appropriate for worship should be used in worship. Since not all kinds of emotion are appropriate for expression to God, not all kinds of music are appropriate either. Finally, all of our musical choices matter because all music shapes our affections. We've focused in this chapter on sacred music, but even music with non-sacred texts shapes our spirits and either prevents us from being able to rightly appreciate good music or helps us develop the right kinds of affections. If you have always viewed sacred music as merely an enjoyable way to affirm biblical truth, perhaps you need to adjust your thinking to recognize the great power and importance of music in worship. You've been listening to an excerpt of Sound Worship, a guide to making musical choices in a noisy world. To purchase copies of this book, visit Amazon.com, where you can also find the Sound Worship Teacher's Edition. Join me next time on Remembering Zion as we set our minds on things that are above.